Rachel Needle from Talking With Tech. And I'm Chris Bouguet from Talking With Tech. We have a podcast dedicated to augmentative and alternative communication, all things related to helping kids with complex communication needs. If you have a passion for helping people with language disabilities, this is the show for you. Each episode features an interview or a roundtable discussion on a topic related to augmentative communication and helping people with language disabilities. And we're really passionate about giving practical strategies to clinicians working in the field who are working with children or adults, anything related to AAC. So you can look us up on iTunes or you can find us on Facebook. We've got a group over there or check out our website at bit.ly slash TWT podcast. Please join our community of professionals that are working to ensure that everyone can say whatever they want to say, however they want to say it. Please listen carefully. What is communication? An essential behavior of life. We have the both blessing and responsibility of trying to foster another. It's the strongest way for two people to convey information to each other. Communication is a lifeline. It's just connection with other people. Connecting people in terms of ideas, thoughts, or needs. Draws us out of ourselves, draws us into that relationship, you know, builds up our families without it being lost. Whatever it is that we do to express intent and achieve an impact. Communication is the ability to express your needs, wants, frustrations, and desires to anyone that you feel needs to have that information. Welcome to Speech Science, Episode 78, proud members of the Exceptional Podcasts Network. I am Matt Hot, joined as always by my wonderful cast and crew, all the way down in Kentucky, Michelle Wintering. How's it going, Matt? I'm good. How are you today, Michelle? Doing well, thanks. And representing the East Coast, Michael McLeod. What's up, buddy? How are you? I'm doing well. Guys, I cannot believe it. We have made it to episode 78, and we want you to have all of the previous episodes, so make sure you head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com, and that'll be with our network friends over at XPN. While you're there, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash mwhproduction. And as always, we want to hear from you at home. Our phone number, 614-681-1798. You can text us, 614-681-1798, or email us, speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. And that hashtag, SSPod. I'm loving it. Guys, it has been a crazy weekend, and I'm going to try to abbreviate it within 30 seconds uh on a really cool positive i've got less than two weeks left of school uh i got my new stuff from the big bad toy store came in and i've been messing with it off air and that's what i showed michelle and then yesterday i'm driving to a patient and did you guys know that only one car can occupy a lane at a time Uh, that's kind of how it usually goes (laughs) I'm assuming that didn't happen yesterday. It did not. I merged. I moved into the center lane, and I was accelerating past these cars, and another car pulls out and sideswipes me in the right front of my car, and we get both of our cars to the side of the highway. Cop shows up. Other guy gets sighted. My car dies. I don't know why. It just started leaking fluid that was not radiator fluid. It just dies on the side of the road. And I had to get dropped off at a coaching event at the high school in the back of a police SUV. Wow. Oh, they gave you a ride, though. That was so <laughs> nice. Nice way. Police escort. I know. They were like, how much of a spectacle is this? And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure the bowling coach being dropped off by a cop, that's 
big enough. We don't need any more spectacle. But you both were okay? Yeah, we were fine. Okay. Get some get some street cred with your kids there. <laughs> Guys, I like I'm it. so tough as a bowling coach that not only did my car not want to make it, but the police had to restrain me. Ugh. That's like at the end of uh, Superbad when McLovin <laughs> pretends to be bad. Oh that could my. be you. That could be you, Matt. Hey, I don't know if you guys know this, but the back of a police car, not very comfortable. I did not know that. It's for most of the listeners probably have never been in the back of a police car. At least I hope so. I'm sure there's uh, I'm sure there's one. There has to be one. There's no cushions. It's all hard plastic because guess what? If you vomit or pee back there, they need to clean it out pretty good. And the officer's on the other side of a pretty sturdy plexiglass. But we had a wonderful conversation on the way, so that was fun. So if you're an SLP and you've been in the back of a police car, <laughs> text us at 614-681-1798. Hey, you memorized it, Mike. <laughs> no, I read it off my phone. Oh, okay. <laughs> no so, one had to know that. But <laughs> I love it. Mike, how has your week been? It was good. I was able to go home this weekend for Mother's Day and see my two nephews and uh, just kind of relax and get away from all the work stuff. And uh, and yeah, it's been good. Things are really winding down, going to a lot of IEP meetings and uh, wrapping things up with a lot of my schools and clients. So overall, it's been pretty, it's been pretty, pretty smooth. What did you get your mom for Mother's Day? Uh, just like some a couple of things from like the Hallmark store, a couple Aww. of <laughs> couple of small things like that. She's not she's not a big gift person, so it's more you spent it's time more, with her. So they yeah, more of a formality, you know. That's nice, Michelle. How did you spend your very first Mother's Day? My very first Mother's Day as a mom, as a mom. My that's true. I mean, I guess I was growing him last year, <laughs> but uh, it, it was great. It was relaxing and. Um, you know, church and time with my husband and my son. And uh, they, they brought me flowers and cards and worked out well. Yeah. I've got a beautiful Aww. yellow bouquet of roses that's still sitting in our, our living room kitchen area. See, here's the only thing I don't like about mother's day and Valentine's day and sweetest day. I try to buy my wife flowers once every month or every two months. And I go to Kroger's and I just pick up, you know, a nice little bouquet and bring them home. Well, on all these holidays, that little bouquet that I normally buy for about ten to fifteen dollars doubles. It's like twenty-eight to forty bucks, and everyone is buying them. And I'm like, I hate all of you guys right now because this is blowing my flower budget for the month. Hey, you know that made me think of living in El Paso, right on the Mexico border. There's so many people who are Mexican Americans, right? And the Mother's Day in Mexico is celebrated. I think it's May 10th, so it always kind of falls around Mother's Day. Your my coworkers joke that you're lucky if it falls on the same day, but otherwise you have to celebrate both if you are Mexican American. Oh, no. so, so you've got to celebrate Mom on the 10th and on the 12th or whatever day that Mother's Day falls in the U.S. Well, you know what, though? Moms work real hard, and I salute you, Michelle, because I know my wife, uh, if you do half the stuff my wife does, that is way too much stuff. And I salute all the moms out there, because if babies were left to just us dads, there'd be a whole lot less babies. <laughs> there'd be a whole lot. Yeah, it's, you know, it's the best and hardest job in the world, I think. Yeah. That's for go. sure. And the second best and the second hardest job would be what we do, SLPs. Woo-hoo. So coming up on today's show, 
Uh, we're going to talk about the Super Soapbox Derby. Also, part two of the Carly Stoltenberg, uh, the recovery part of her uh, last year with uh, GBS. And we're also going to talk about battling vaccine and evidence-based misinformation. But this first story coming out of the Asha Wire, uh, this is coming out of the American Journal of Speech-Language Pathology uh, by Henry Angulo Jimenez and Laura DeThorne. Uh, narratives about autism and analysis of YouTube videos by individuals who self-identify uh, as autistic. Uh, Michelle, we are talking off air. You said you did your undergrad uh, thesis in self-identification. What was it? Narrative? Oh, um, it, I didn't do my undergrad in speech, so it took a, right. a different route. But, um, but my undergrad thesis was on narratives of firefighters. So it was all on narrative research and um, families of firefighters as well. So I did a lot, a lot of interviews. Um, and then working with Dr. McCarthy in his research lab in grad school at Ohio University, one of his areas of study is narratives. At the time, it was specifically narratives of people with disabilities. So I kind of want to reach out to him and see if he has read this article. What's the important thing that we look at when we look at narratives before we get into the findings of this study? Um, I think one of the biggest things that I would emphasize is that how we describe our experiences and how we talk about and retell experiences um, defines our reality of those experiences. So, um, you know, how we look back on experiences is really important. Mike, you work with a lot of students that are in the age that they can self start to self-identify. They can start looking at narratives. Have you ever done any like looked at this way with therapy by having the students look at video models of someone experiencing a breakdown or, or such? Oh yeah, absolutely. This is definitely something that I think is only going to grow as access to, to technology gets more integrated into uh, everyday life as well as our therapy sessions. So this is really um, an article I, I really feel like a lot of SLP should read because this is something that could very could not only make treatment more enjoyable, but it, could, it can also make treatment planning and actual therapy a bit easier because a lot of the work is already done via video and it's a great way to increase that internal motivation, that intrinsic motivation towards therapy, towards the goals. And being able – I've worked with uh, – individuals with Asperger's who you know, we watched like different sitcom shows so they could learn back and forth social communication like episodes of Seinfeld or Friends or whatever it may be so they can kind of uh, learn some of that back and forth and the conversation switching topic changing topic maintenance things like that but now with YouTube uh, with these vloggers uh, like the article talks about um, the ability to kind of tell these self narratives and self identify and self advocate. I think this is a great thing that many, many SLPs can incorporate into their treatment. In the clinical impl implications down at the way at the bottom, it says the study had three different clinical implications. The first is the need to familiarize oneself with the varying views of autism held by autistic individuals. The second related implication is to reflect on the way we as professionals uh, talk about autism and to listen to how our clients and their families talk about autism. And third and finally, data from this study suggests the importance of exploring the potential positive dimensions of autistic traits 
both in research and clinical practice. And that's the part I wanted to focus in on. How many times have you guys worked with a student? And I've done this way too many times where we try to extinguish a behavior. And then the student says, no, that's the part of the thing that I really like. That's something I really enjoy. Have you guys ever ran into that? I've run into it a couple too many times, I should say. Yeah, I've definitely ran into that as well. And sometimes we really focus a bit too much on what's happening externally, on what that behavior is, what can be seen, uh, pretty much how we interpret it. But there's many times maybe they're reenacting something they saw on YouTube or they're you know sensory seeking or something's happening and there's something much deeper going on that we're not attending to or we're not recognizing. So I think these videos can help uh, help us put together uh, why someone may act a certain way or why a behavior may act a certain way. What I always do is when I have behaviors like that is I, I, I try to stay away from don't do that, don't do that, some of these negative directives. I mm-hmm. try to find creative ways as a therapist to replace the behavior with language. So instead of it being an external, whatever it may be, jumping or hitting or whatever, replace it with something they can say instead of an an actual uh, physical behavior. Replacing it with language. I like that emphasis. Yep. One of the, the, the takeaways from the article, it said that we need to do better jobs as therapists to ask the person with autism how they want to be identified. Do they want to be called a person with autism person first or an autistic person, the, the identity first. And that I was, I was beaten into my brain to say person first language. That's the hardest part that I'm having with this. This study was just reading that part where it says, Hey, if they want to be called an autistic person, you call them an autistic person. And, And that just rings every bell in my body that says, don't do that. But it's interesting that that's one of the, the takeaways that the people with autism want want that question to be asked of them. And I think their you know, narratives, like I had said earlier, are so much how we tell our stories are so much a part of who we are that how they talk about themselves is very important if you're working with someone who is, I would say, middle schooler and up especially, right? Mm-hmm. And especially a young adult like Matt and Mike, you both work with young adults. And I that caught me as well because it reminds me too of working with the deaf and blind populations who the vast majority prefer to be called deaf and blind mm-hmm. deaf blind not a person who is deaf they say i am a deaf person especially if they say deaf capital d and so i love the idea of saying do you have a preference for the phrase person with autism versus autistic person but now how do i remember that and make sure that i'm <laughs> calling that person well- what and they here, prefer. Here's how you look at it. The the article talks a little bit about shifting from the medical <laughs> model to the neurodiversity paradigm. And, and the medical model describes, for example, describes autistic traits with words that suggest deficit, delay, defect, or excess. And the non- neurodiversity paradigm, uh, it contextualizes, redefines, and reverla. Uh, contextualizes and redefines autistic traits. I cannot say <laughs> R-E-V-A-L-O-R-I-Z-E-S. Reverolize? But no, so what they're saying is it's a, it's a paradigm shift. It's a shift in the way that we're thinking uh, and basically going from non-autistic health professional scientists and other 
I'm reading from here, neurotypic individuals as the experts on autism to thinking that people with autism are the experts on autism. Yeah, and I feel like this is really where the these video models could really come in handy because mm -hmm. you, you may be working with someone and ask them what they want to identify as and they truly might not know. So it takes some of these these videos and some of these vloggers for them to find someone they connect with, someone they enjoy watching, and they may find someone that that becomes their favorite person and someone that they identify with and externally uh, are motivated by. And whoever that person identifies as, I'm sure they'll feel comfortable doing it that way as well. So not only are you giving them video models, but you're kind of giving them a bit of a role model as well. This is someone who is answering questions and talking about something that is similar to you and look at what they're doing with themselves and how, what can we do? What can we do to work hard to attain these things as well? Well, and, uh, a vlog, right? A video on YouTube is, we typically see it as one-way communication. So the, per mm -hmm. the vlogger has a captive audience that they're putting this out there, it's already made, and then they're getting that interaction or unless we're doing a video live on Facebook or something else nowadays, we have more opportunity for the two-way communication with it. And like Mike said, maybe connecting them with someone who has a similar identity that they do. Right. I, I like this idea of the paradigm shift. I really do. And, and Michelle, I've been thinking about how you said, you know, some of our patients that are hard of hearing or deaf, they identify as a deaf person or a blind person. And that, that just goes against everything I learned in grad school. But it's probably more important than anything else we do. It's just asking the silly question to say, what do you want to be called? How do I how do you how do I address you? Mm -hmm. And I think there are there are certain categories, certain disability categories that are more a community than just a medical diagnosis. And Asperger's and autism are one of those, just like deaf, hard of hearing, or deafblind or blind are, that they identify that as almost a title and a part of themselves. Right. And they don't want that taken away. I personally like the term neurodiverse. I think that's a really... That, mm -hmm. that, that's something that it, it doesn't have that negative connotation to it. And it kind of just, you know, it throws that diversity in there and it's just, you know, it's different, but not less. So I, I, I think it definitely, I, I like that term. And I think the more we can kind of build on that as an, as a speech community, I think that would definitely do some good for a lot of the people we work with. Are you sitting at home? Are you driving and you have something to say? Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. Email us, speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Or text us, 614-681-1798. Or hit that hashtag life, SSPod. Or the one we did tonight, SSPod for life. That's I right. did that, that like the number four and life spelled with a Y or an I, Matt? Because it, it's an it's an I, but like if you remember the old WCW, it was NWO for life. There you go. That's right. Michael and I are throwing up the Wolfpack symbol. That's ah, right. all right. This article coming out of the CBS News teaching anti-vax parents to trust science and the MMR vaccine. Uh, it's a basic article talking about how we as medical professionals can try to work with anti-vaxxers to get them vaccinated against measles. But 
I figured we could use that as a springboard into what do we do when we're faced with non-evidence-based therapy models? How do we redirect our families into using something and trusting something that we use that's a little bit more evidence-based? Uh, and I figured this might be something that might be an interesting roundtable about what we've done in the past. I mean, I, I, we've all used or have been told to use one of those wonderful R bite blocks or use a oral motor strengthening uh, ring that I was sent one time. Like, how do you guys handle the non-evidence-based therapy? That is an excellent question. Or do we? Yeah, sort of like the whole rapid prompting thing we've previously discussed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There you go. So yeah, I pretty much those those R bite things that you just mentioned that certainly rings a bell with me. Uh, anytime it's something that's out of the ordinary, anytime it's something that uh, that's n- pretty much new to me, I'm always going to look at the research. I'm always going to look at uh, Dr. Meredith Harold at the Informed SLP. I'm always going to uh, uh, use the great. SLP Facebook community that's out there to find out really what's out there and and learned what the research is. I think that's crucial for us all to do because if you're going to be wasting your time as well as your students' time on something that we're, where you haven't done the research to make sure that the actual treatment you're doing is not evidence-based, it's crucial that we do this research. And I think this article really, really, you know, to, to, to back away from the whole vaccination point, it's really just a matter of what is the research and are we doing what the research tells us to do? And I think this article really pointed out the fact that it's hard to um, push against something that we don't know the exact cause of, right? So the article talks about autism and vaccines and the article that we've all talked about that has been disproven over and over uh, based on actual research that... (laughs) vaccines do not cause autism but that is still sticking in people's minds because of the correlation of the age and then also because we don't have an answer yet from research to definitively say what does cause autism so families are left trying to fill in that gap and as therapists just like mike said i'm gonna try to find what research there is, maybe give them an article, give them a book to read, connect them with another family that I know has maybe gone through that experience Mm -hmm. of a diagnosis of autism as well. Um, There's a lot of groups that are support groups for that. Um, But I can't always be just the sole person who's going to convince them. It's it's not going to be just the SLP. Well, I've even noticed this when I do my home care like a lot of my patients will hand me a ad that they get in the newspaper. And I don't know if you guys have seen these ads in the newspaper that look like they're just articles and they're talking about a new brain enhancement drug that will fight the effects of dementia. Didn't we, we touched on this, right? I I, I think we have. And it's just, that it's one of those things where it's devastating as a therapist to say, Hey, I'm helping you do this. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, Here's this random article of stuff that we've never talked about before. Mm -hmm. Well, and this made me think of, I I did an interview for us and it's going to come up later in the podcast for us, but with um, 
uh, a woman who's a dietitian who works with families. And one thing she said that kind of stuck with me is when we're working with other professionals and maybe it's a teacher who brings that or a family member who brings it or a doctor, someone who's following something that's not necessarily evidence-based, we've really got to build that rapport with the other professionals. And um, her point was that it undermines their trust, a patient's trust, say another therapist that they worked with, their home therapist or their private therapist or their school therapist is using something that we know is not evidence-based. How do we, how do we combat that? I'm kind of asking your help because at the, say a patient comes to me and says, my other SLP recommends this. I know that the whistles they're working on is not going to help with their articulation, right? (laughs) But how do I do that and not completely undermine the other SLP to say they're doing really great things otherwise, but this one thing they're not, but you should trust them on everything else because we're breaking that trust between the patient and the SLP or the other professional. So what do you guys recommend? How do we well, first, balance that. Identifying the ASHA code of ethics about what we're allowed and what we're not allowed to do when it comes to commenting on other SLPs therapy. And, and unfortunately, we really can't, according to the code of ethics, the way I understand it, we can't say, oh, man, that dude's a wackadoodle. Don't go to him. Um, what I would do is that I would say, hey, here's the research that doesn't support necessarily support that. I would ask the SL. I would tell the parent to ask the other SLP to maybe give them a little bit more information on how that how that works and how that supports what they're trying to do. Would you reach out to the other SLP, obviously with patient permission? But I don't know. I, Mike, what would you do? <laughs> I'm, I'm formulating would... my thoughts over here so I don't get angry emails. I think one of the best things to do is to just kind of educate the family a little bit and have them kind of just be aware to always look out for the data. So based on the therapy they're receiving and whatever the treatment plan is, whether it's non-speech oral motor exercises or whatever, just have the parent say, you need to be provided with consistent data to see if your child is progressing. And if you are not noticing any progression based on the therapy that's being provided you have the right to suggest something new and you know we this is when an iep meeting could be called or whatever it may be where we can discuss changing the course of therapy so data tracking and if if the child's progressing or not i think that's one fairly easy way to do it is just kind of educate the parents you could share journal articles whatever it may be But if the child is not progressing due to the inefficacy of a treatment, I think that's that's what we can always do as as SLPs is kind of educate the parents on their rights and what they can do to aid the therapy. I was going to kind of say this as well, and it kind of goes well, well with what Michael's saying. My fear about reaching out to the other SLPs is a lot of times the SLPs that are using non evidence based practices are not the ones that are going to be the most likely to be open to hearing from somebody else about why they're wrong or questioning their idea. Um, In my experience, when I've ever tried to do that, it's always come out that I'm they I come off as the bad guy for questioning them. And then I lose the trust of the patient. And then I have an angry other professional, even though I may be a hundred percent in the right. uh, it, It just never ends like 
you know, like Luke Skywalker said, this isn't going to end the way you think it is. It, it just never does. It always ends up with a very ticked off SLP and a family who's going to believe the SLP that they pay. Cause I'm a school-based SLP. They're going to believe the one that they're paying versus the quote, dumb one at the school. That's so really that a not quote. help. I, <laughs> Which I, one? That's really a quote. The dumb one at the school. Yeah, that makes me so sad. I have been told I was the dumb SLP and I've been questioned on my uh, ability to be as an SLP because I work in the school multiple times until I mention all my other credentials and they're like, Oh, you're like a good one. And I was like, ah, Oh yeah, and, I guess. And as an SLP who is in private practice, what Matt is saying is 100% correct. There is that idea by parents mm -hmm. that private practice SLPs are more highly trained than school SLPs. And I am consistently debunking that myth. Because that, because oftentimes the opposite is true, and it's it's there's really no it, that is that is a a completely wrong stereotype mm -hmm. that needs to be completely debunked because that is ridiculous. All private practice SLPs out there, all we want to do is collaborate and share ideas with school SLPs. In no way, shape, or form are we trying to tell people how to do their job or we're better than you or any of that sort of thing. And, yep. and it's parents that sometimes push that idea. And that is something that private practice SLPs, it's kind of our responsibility to let them know that that is false. Well said, Mike. Yeah. Yep. I love it, Mike. All right, we mm -hmm. want to hear from you. Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. From there, you can email us, speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Or give us a phone call, 614-681-1798. Or hashtag us, SSPod. All right, coming yeah, up. Yeah, thanks the... for all the Instagram interaction. I'm loving the Instagram interactions and then the accidental stuff that shows up on Facebook. And then I remember that we have an Instagram. So that's how that all works for me. As an old, uh, old, old man now at my ripe old age of 33, guys. Got to get with the youngins, Matt. Ah, Speaking of, coming up around the break, Kali Stoltenberg, it's part two of her uh, Guillain-Barre uh, syndrome. This is the part where we talk about the recovery and how she got back to what her new normal is. Sit tight. You're listening to Speech Science. Do you have an idea for a product or book? Or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started? And what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders Podcast and fast-track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people. Welcome back to Speech Science. I'm Matt Hunt, and I'm excited today to be joined by Carly Stoltenberg, uh, a speech and language pathologist for the last 24 years, a regional director for EBS Healthcare, and an adjunct professor, Rio Salado College, also a clinical associate professor at Arizona State University. And the reason she's on our show today, she's also a survivor of Guillain-Barre syndrome, a peer mentor for others that have GBS and other rare uh, illnesses. One of my biggest fears since I learned about it in grad school is that locked-in syndrome where you know 
what's going on, but you just can't say it. And that's one of the reasons before we started, I asked you what is communication? Because uh-huh. to me, that's one of the most important things we do as, as speech pass. Right. I, I want to kind of start talking about the rehab part a little bit. Sure. How long were you, I, I don't want to say locked in, but how long were you unable to verbally communicate and relied on that, the, the board and, and the blinking? And then what was speech therapy like? I so think what were they working that, on? Sure. Um, I relied on the alternative communication system for, I think, two and a half weeks. Um, because I was in and out of ICU three different times. And um, that the second time was when it was pretty severe. And that's when I was, you know, I was on a ventilator twice. But that second time was when I really was on there for a long period of time. And so the speech therapy that I needed was to kind of help determine how to communicate. Okay. But to be honest, I didn't get that kind of support because I don't think my speech pathologist knew a lot about that and about like AAC or just like the situation both um I mean if you go into a typical hospital you have to remember I was just in a regular hospital I wasn't in a hospital that really specialized in this and so when you go into a regular hospital room I'm sure you visited people you know that have been in hospitals and you might have even noticed oh there's a communication board hanging on the wall and it's something very they had those I didn't need those like I didn't want those. It wasn't what I wanted to say. Again, I couldn't isolate my finger to point to anything. I couldn't use eye gaze to look at the pictures. That's why I was just like, write the words on my hospital door, point to them with your finger. I'll shake my head yes if it's what I want. And if it's not what I want, then it's not as laborious for me to blink my eyes as it is, as it is for anything else. So I guess I am lucky that I was able to advocate my, for myself in that regard where I was like, nope, nope, you're not doing it right to anybody that came in and tried to help me because, again, that's how I used to be. I, I used to think, especially if somebody was cognitively intact, give them the best, you know, highest tech communication system on the market, you know. I didn't want that. I didn't want a voice output device. I didn't need any of that stuff, you know, or it just for me personally. And everybody's different, you know, and that's what we have to keep coming around to is, you might have worked with one patient with Guillain-Barre, but the next one that walks through your door might be completely different. And I know that you'd asked me before, like where I am now in my recovery. Um, I was told initially that 80% of people make a full recovery from Guillain-Barre syndrome. And what I'm finding out now is I don't necessarily believe that because Guillain-Barre is considered an autoimmune disorder. And so you might have it latent in your body for a while, but it could come back. And I still don't have feeling in my feet. Like I describe it as like when you go in in the snow or you go skiing and you have snow boots on and your feet feel like numb and tingly, that's how my feet feel 24 seven. And I've gotten to the point where it doesn't bother me because I don't remember what it was like to be quote normal. Um, but I do have from time to time the neuropathy where it feels like stabbing pain or fiery pain, but I get, I've learned to ignore that as well. Um, I still get numbness and tingling in my fingers. Um, I sometimes get shortness of breath. Um, I sometimes like, I have more issues with, with, with bathroom issues, like alternating diarrhea, constipation. I know this is probably too much information. Or like, if you're willing you know, to share it, we're willing yeah, to listen. You know, pain my pants. <laughs> like if I jump, I, 
But again, like all of those muscles, all the nerves that innervate that stuff, I don't think it's fully recovered. And I don't know if it ever will be recovered, but I just, I, I have, because it's autoimmune and it's in you all the time, I, I don't, I believe that it's a misnomer to say that something is, you know, fully recovered. It just, my doctors look at me and they're like, oh, you're fully recovered, you know? And I'm like, no, I'm not, you know? Right. Um, but I, in all the people that I've mentored with Guillain-Barre, I've kind of come up with my own theory is that I think that we all recover to the point that, to the person that we were prior to Guillain-Barre, but maybe with some modifications. I, as I told you, was always type A. I was always independent. I was always burning the candle at both ends, multitasking. That's still the person that I am now, but there are times that I need to tell people no because my body is telling me no. I, there are days where I come home from work and I just nap. Um, I still have, you know, full disclosure, it's what, Tuesday? Mm-hmm. I have dishes in my sink from Easter, from Sunday, that I haven't done because I've been too tired to do them after I come home from work. Um, and then I had this tonight. So maybe tonight. <laughs> but You're welcome. I, yeah, yes, thank you. <laughs> I mean, again, anybody that doesn't know me thinks I'm, quote, normal. I know that I'm not, but nobody else knows that. But when I go through the process of mentoring other people, in the hospitals or, you know, I have all these people now that are like, oh my gosh, I have a friend of a friend of a friend who has Guillain-Barre. And it's like, they're, even though it's very rare, one in 100,000, I think it happens more than we think, but I've become exposed to more people that have it. And I can think of two other people who have quote, fully recovered like me. And both of those people are type A. Like one of them is my friend Kara, who I have met through Guillain-Barre, who's only 21, but she was um, um, a Flint scholar. Um, I don't know if you know what that is, but I mean, super prestigious scholarship that they only award to a few people in Arizona every year. She was heading towards medical school, like, you know, really go get her. And then she was in Spain and got Guillain-Barre. And she came back home and we ended up getting her to Barrow where I was at, you know, at my hospital with my doctors, my therapist. And I remember the first day that I went to go see her and I shared with her the advice that my mentor had shared with me, the one that had come walking through my door that I thought was fully recovered. And she said, Carly, I'm going to tell you something. Just because you, when you get home from the hospital, doesn't mean that you're cured. And she goes, take my advice. Do not push yourself because Research shows that if your mind or your body get too stressed, that you can have setbacks with Guillain-Barre. And I remember coming home from the hospital and like telling my mom, get my work computer. I want to start like scheduling things. I need to find a purpose for my life again. I need to be scheduled and structured. I need to make phone calls. And my my, uh, mentor, Melissa, had said, don't do that kind of stuff because within the first week, she said I was back in the hospital again. And I told my mom, I go, that's just Melissa. That's not me. I, that's not going to happen to me. Well, I was back in the hospital a month after I got out because I had stressed out my body too much. And I was back in the hospital like nine months later, same thing where the doctor was like, you know, have you been overdoing things? And I was like, no. And my friend Dina was with me and she goes, Carly, she goes, you just ran Pat Tillman's run. You're doing Pilates every day. 
you're a single mom, you're traveling for work, you were just at Arsha last weekend, and the doctor was like looking at me like, are you crazy? And I was like, what? Like, I used to do more than that, you know? So it's just, again, I'm back to where I was with modifications, but there are people that I've mentored that are still in power wheelchairs. Um, that 16-year-old boy that I was telling you about, mm -hmm. he's still in a power wheelchair. And for him, his life prior to GBS was that he was in prison for armed robbery. And he was going down a path that was not the path that I had for myself. And he's now out of prison, but he's back home. He's still in a power chair. His um, therapists and social workers have talked to him. You know, do you want to go back to high school? And he's like, no, I'm, I'm good. I'll just do online school. Well, this is a 16-year-old who loves gaming and texting his friends. And he's perfectly content to sit in his wheelchair and text and talk to his friends online because that's exactly what he was doing before he got Guillain-Barre. So again, he's back to where he was before, a modified version of himself, but he's happy, you know? So I, I just, I don't think that there is a one size fits all in terms of recovery, but I do feel like it's important to help your patients get back to where they were, um, you know? And I, I always use the example of when I first got out of the hospital, you know, I didn't have, you know, have the, the hand strength to open up the tinfoil on top of a yogurt container. And my mom would start to grab for it to open it for me. And I would say, I need to do it myself. I know you want to help me, but please let me try. And so I grabbed a knife and I cut around the, the tinfoil and I was like, I opened it. You know, so I opened it and it looked different than it used to for me, but I did it. And that's kind of become kind of the, you know, the analogy of what I use for my, my life is that it might look different, but I'm still doing it. You had mentioned a couple of times your kids and, and being a mom mm -hmm. and how did they take it and how did you explain or how was it explained to them what was kind of going on? And then what was it like that first time you could hug your kids again? I know you said about hugging your mom, but. Yeah, uh, it's it, all different kinds of feels. I can tell you that they they were told, you know, right away that, that something was wrong because I was their primary caregiver. They were only with my ex-husband a couple times a month. I was PTO vice president. I was room mom in both their classrooms. I had a very flexible schedule. So how, I how old were they? Dedicated. At the time, they were eight and nine. Okay. So um, young, you know, they still need me. But they were told right away, you know, mom's sick. And, you know, they were prepared ahead of time. They had um, a social worker from the hospital explain to them what they were going to see the first time they walked in and saw me in a ventilator. So was it easy? Were they like, oh, this is great? No. Um, they were scared, poopless, to be honest. I mean, they, my, they came in the room and my ex was like, go give mommy a hug. And they're like, oh, like I wasn't their mom. I was a skeleton on a ventilator, you know? Um, but we definitely went through counseling. When I came home, my ex-husband and I both went with the kids and there were times that the kids would be in together, times that all four of us would be together, times the two of them were by themselves. And it was really important to me that I was able to help them through that trauma. Um, and so I got out of the hospital July 20th of 2017 and remember it being around Christmas time. It was Christmas time because my daughter you know, always finds random things around the house or makes presents for me and wraps them up. And 
on Christmas morning, I opened up this gift from her and it was a little Polaroid photo of me in the first hospital. And so that I was admitted to the hospital April 9th of 2017 and Easter came a couple weeks later. But being the type A person I was, I had already started to, you know, put things together for their Easter baskets. And I had ordered things off of Amazon. And one of them was one of those little Polaroid cameras. And so I had my mom put it all together in the basket and they brought it to the hospital. And they, I don't remember at the time, but they were taking pictures, you know, around the hospital with their new cameras. And one of the pictures was of me. And so when I opened up this picture, I looked at it and I said, Kate, what is this? And she said, well, it's a picture of you in the hospital. I said, well, I, I know, but why did you give this to me? And this little, you know, eight-year-old girl said something to the effect of, because I wanted you to see how much progress you've made. And so, of course, the next time we went back to counseling, I'm like, oh my gosh, listen to this. You have to hear what Kate gave me for Christmas. And the counselor said, yeah, I know. She told me she was going to do that. Aww. And I guess she had told the counselor while my mom was in the hospital, um, I kept this picture with me all the time because I thought my mom was going to die. And I realized I don't need it anymore. So she had wrapped it up and she had given it to me. So at, and at that point, my, the counselor said, you know, I don't think the behaviors that we're seeing are, you know, due to your illness. I think it's just typical preteen behavior. And I was like, oh, <laughs> we're good. I don't need to come anymore. So... But counseling, um, again, going back to the, the presentation I do and talking about how to help your patients, it's so important to be able to have shared experiences with, with other people. And that's part of the reason why I mentor others is I know how much that brought to me when I was going through it to be able to talk to someone else who had been through it. But again, it's also selfish because every time I talk to someone who has Guillain-Barre syndrome, it validates for me that I'm normal. You know, what I'm feeling is normal. So it's very therapeutic. And that's why, again, like on Facebook, um, I write about it. When I was in the hospital, someone had started a Facebook page and it's called GBS Carly Recovering Like a Champ and Looking Good Doing It. And <laughs> it's a public page. So anybody that wants to see it, they can see it. But it documents from one of the first days I was in the hospital all the way up through present where that was the platform that was being used that my parents were getting endless texts and phone calls. And finally, my friend Karen was like, you know, let me set up this page so that I can update people. So they were able to update that. And then once I was able to use a computer again, use my phone, like I couldn't even hold a phone for a long time. I started documenting and Again, going back with my inspirational quotes, that was a lot of times the impetus for what I wanted to write about. And it just kind of helped me um, to process it. And I always direct people that I'm mentoring, hey, if you want to look at my Facebook page, I have videos, I have pictures. You know, the, the first time I learned how to walk again, there's a video of that. So you can see that it was hard. It's just as, it was just as hard for me as it is for you. And even though it looks easy for me now, you can get to this point too. So you went to Barrow, which is located in Phoenix, correct? It is. Mm -hmm. How, you were there, you said you were in the main hospital 59 days and a total of 103 overall? So I was in the main hospital 59 and Barrow for 44. And I left the first hospital again, never even in a wheelchair. 
And when I was only in Barrow for 44 days, but by the time I left Barrow, I went home with a wheelchair, a rental wheelchair, but I was already starting to walk with my walker. And one of the last steps in my recovery or like therapy for myself was going back to that first hospital. And it was very scary for me. I didn't, I got out of the hospital July 20th and I didn't go back to that, excuse me, that first hospital until uh, February. I kind of felt like I was finally ready to do it because I had told the nurses at that hospital, I said, I'm going to walk again. And when I do, I'm going to come through those hospital doors and I'm going to bring you some homemade cookies. And so <laughs> that's what I did. I went and I brought the cookies and I brought like blankets and chapstick and things that I knew made me feel comfort. When I was in the hospital, I thought, I want this to be for patients that don't get visited. And while I was in the cafeteria at the hospital, I felt like it was such a surreal feeling to be in a place that I had spent two months of my life and not remember it. And I was like, I want to walk around. I want to see what my visitors saw when they came to see me. I want to go to the cafeteria where my parents ate every meal. So I went down to the cafeteria and I was sitting there. And while I was sitting there, my doctor that had told me that I would never walk again came through the, the cafeteria and I stood up and I was like, hi, doctor, so-and-so. And he looks at me and he goes, do I know you? And I said, yeah, I was your patient here a few months ago. And he goes, I don't know you. And I said, Carly Stoltenberg. And he's like, you're walking? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, how long did it take you to walk? And I said, about six weeks after I left here. And he was like, oh my gosh. And I said, so just so you know, the most appropriate placement for a patient with Guillain-Barre after acute hospital setting is acute rehab. And I really want you to remember that. And I just walked away. <laughs> you're like, I'm a speech path. I am so yeah. used to you not yeah. listening to my orders. I am going to tell you one right yeah. now. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't mean to bash on doctors or whatever, no. because I have had so many great doctors and nurses. And, you know, one of them being the neurologist that I have now that I, the neurologist I had while I was at the first hospital didn't specialize in Guillain-Barre. And when I got to Barrow, I didn't have a neurologist. I just had a physiatrist that was overseeing my care. So a year post-diagnosis, when I went for my year checkup, my neurologist is like, you know, great, you're doing well. And I'm like, but I still have numbness. I'm still not feeling well. I still get tired easily. I'm still having shortness of breath. And he was like, he basically said, you're lucky to be alive and you're lucky to be walking again. Like that's the feeling I got. And it was like, you know, that's as good as you're going to get. Right. And I was like, okay, well then I think maybe a week later, maybe it was a week later. No, it might've been more than that. A couple weeks later, I ended up in the hospital again. That was when I had done the Pat Tillman race and ended up back in the hospital. And I went to a different hospital that was associated with Barrow. And that neurologist that was there admitted professional limitation. And he said, Carly, I don't specialize in Guillain-Barre. I would really suggest that you find a neurologist who does, who can follow your case. And so he ended up referring me to the same neurologist that one of my other friends that I've made through GBS his son has had it twice, and that was his neurologist, and he is phenomenal. He's in Phoenix, and he's associated with the Mayo Clinic, and he spent an hour in, he pulled me into his office after the initial examination and sat me down in the, in the office setting and was just like, I want to be aggressive with reevaluating you and treating you if you're okay with that, and I said, absolutely, 
And he said, I want to recommend a three-month trial of IVIG, which is intravenous immunoglobulin, and we'll see how you do. And by the time we were able to start all that, it wasn't until October of 2018, so very recently. And oh, yeah, that's like five yeah, months ago. Yeah, we did it for three months, and then I went back to the neurologist and talked and said, Carly, I honestly think you have the chronic version of Guillain-Barre. It's called chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, CIDP. And he said, based on the way your body is responding to the treatment, you know, that it's helping you. And then, you know, when you approach having the infusions again, you start getting a little bit more tired. He said, I, I, I really do think that you, you have this chronic version. And I was like, well, thank you so much for for helping me because nobody else was willing to listen. And so you asked what my life is like now. Um, I'm still a single mom of two. I still travel for work. Um, I have a full-time caseload on a, in addition to that right now because I'm filling in for somebody else. Um, I teach an online class through Rio Salado for um, special ed, ed teachers. Um, but I also have a home health nurse come to my house every three weeks and we spend about five hours infusing. And I, I always laugh because people are like, oh my gosh, that's horrible. I'm like, no, it's actually a, a day off. You know, <laughs> it forces me to give me Benadryl. I fall asleep. It forces me to rest. So, yeah. I'm so only I'm, laughing because only the speech path with a full caseload and kids would be like, oh, no, this is. Hook me, hook me up. Hook me up. Yeah. <laughs> can, so, you come, can you come once a week? Like, yeah, give me exactly, that day off? Exactly. <laughs> no, you know what? And, and that's my personality anyways. If you don't laugh about it, then you cry. And um, I really, again, going back to the fact that I've always been a pretty positive person, I have decided that April 9th is not a day to, to mourn. It's not a day to be angry. I have decided April 9th is a day to celebrate. And so every year on my anniversary of my diagnosis, I have decided I'm going to do something that's on my bucket list. So last year, my first year anniversary, I decided that I wanted to take piano lessons. And I just um, had my first recital and I was able to play and I was, I'm the only adult client that she has and all the other kids are playing these awesome songs and you know, mine's nothing, nothing major, but it makes me happy and it gives me joy to like, know that I'm making music. And you know, this year on my year anniversary, I did, first I was going to, I was going to do skydiving and then I thought better of it and thought, you know what, Carly, your body is still not um, completely healthy. And going back to the fact that if you, you know, stressed your body or your mind too much, you might have a setback. I can and you have kids, just so you know. So I was like, I'm not going to do skydiving, but I want to go in a hot air balloon. So Kara, my friend with GBS, she and I went to do this together um, this past Friday and it was amazing it was so peaceful and it i said it's so symbolic for what my mission is because i keep saying that gbs has changed my perspective on everything including on my perspective on being a speech pathologist but it was symbolic because i was it was changing my perspective on the earth i was getting a different view of the earth from this hot air balloon but my dad was like oh my gosh you know why are you doing that it's dangerous i'm like dad if you knew my first choice, you'd be happy with my second choice. <laughs> and then as we were coming down, we actually had a crash landing where we, end, we ended up sideways. And Karen and I were laughing and we're like, 
oh my gosh, like, wouldn't that be ironic that we both survived and then we died from a hot air balloon? So we laughed, you know, but that's kind of what's gotten me through. I just, I just was clicking through the pictures and there's the sideways basket. Like. Oh yeah, it was terrifying. <laughs> and I ended up on top of her and all I can think is, thank goodness we're both, you know, pretty lightweight because right, we landed in my butts in her face. I'm like, sorry, Kara, sorry for the view. Yeah. For for people that don't know, I know Mailing Chan who does the exceptional uh, people interview, the exceptional I love show. Her. And she's the one introduced you to me. And I could just imagine her having to send me the message to be like, uh, so I know I tried to get you to interview Carly, but she's been in a hot air balloon accident. <laughs> I'd be like, what? Right, right. And then she, Kira and I were both laughing, like, because um, at the end they were like, is anybody celebrating anything? And I'm like, yes, we're celebrating life. We're, you know, we're happy to be alive and here's why. And then we said, you know what? Maybe, you know, we're sorry that you guys ended up in a balloon with us because maybe it's because of us that, you know, we crashed or whatever. But that's become, you know, a joke. It's like one in 100,000 people get Guillain-Barre and I was the lucky one. So, you know, this year I played, and I'll do a plug for the Barrow Health and Wealth Raffle. I played the Barrow Health and Wealth Raffle because, the you know, it's a one in 25 chance that you'll win this great prize. And I thought if I am one in 100,000 that can get Guillain-Barre, then I certainly can be one in 25 that wins this great prize. <laughs> I just had to Google how often, what are the odds of a hot air balloon accident? What is it? Um, so small that they don't have a number. Oh, wow. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, they say go. most hot air balloon accidents are uh, hitting things. So there you go. Well, yeah. Well, we hit some desert <laughs> I can tell you that. We were trucking along sideways, running over plants. <laughs> so... So this whole process, and you've kind of touched on it off and on, and, and I love that you've sat down with us for so long so far. So hopefully I can keep you a few more minutes. Sure. How has that really, and like I said, you touched on a little bit, how's that changed how you look at your patients and you even touched on how you can make that personal connection? That's a, that's a great question. Um, as I mentioned, I, since January, have been uh, filling in because we have a SLPA in one of our districts that we didn't have a supervisor for. So I'm now the supervisor of this caseload with 97 students on it. Oh, wow. Um, it's, it's a very diverse caseload where we have medically fragile, it's all high school, but medically fragile all the way up through gen ed. And I have so much compassion for those kids in the level one classroom who are in feeding tubes who are in wheelchairs, who are completely nonverbal, because I was there, you know, and that's something that I know a lot of people struggle to work with that population, myself included, because you never feel like you're doing enough. But I was talking with the, the parapros and the therapists that were in there the other day. And one of the, um, one of the students has um, a one-on-one -on -one nurse and the nurse was like massaging his feet and like, um, stretching his feet and everything. And I just said, I have to tell you that I know that he can't communicate this to you, but I will communicate that he's so lucky to have you doing that for him. Because number one, it's so important to stretch your patient's body when they can't stretch it for themselves. But a lot of times it also helps, like, you know, depending on my 
um, where I was in my recovery. Sometimes it hurt to have people touch me. Other times it felt good. So just having that foot massage, I'm like, I'm sure he's loving that. But just, I, I came back to that human connection. You treating that child with dignity and respect and not being afraid to touch him, even though he's drooling and even though he has all these secretions and, you know, that you're still talking to him like he understands and that who knows what he can understand. He might understand everything that you're saying to him. He might not, but either way, you're treating him with the dignity that he, he deserves. And so you're doing something, whether or not you, you realize that you are doing something. And I just want to, you know, put that out there to all of the therapists that are out there that there are so many times that I feel like a facade that I think, how in the world do I have a master's degree in this? Like, isn't it like common sense what we do? Like, it doesn't make sense that I'm being paid to do this or that I have a degree in this. But there are times that I don't know what to do with, with a client or a patient or a student. But, and there are so many times I deviate from what my plan is because of something that I think that patient or that student needs instead. And I just think you need to give yourself some grace that yes, we need to be accountable to the goals that we write for our students and obviously the goals we write for our patients because it's by law, we're accountable to IEPs or treatment plans or Medicaid or you know insurance. But at the same time, even if you think you're doing nothing, you're, you might be that one person that spends time giving that patient, that person, what they need in terms of the human connection. And I guess in a roundabout way, that's what communication means to me, that it's so that whole human connection, the ability to communicate what you want, what you need to be able to participate somehow in a social setting. You know, a lot of our, our patients who are so sick can't eat and like eating and dining out is such a social event that even sitting with your patient or, or moving your student to a table for lunch, even if they can't eat, there's a lot to be said for that. And even if it's not, quote, technically communication, we have to understand and remember that communication is all of that. It is, you know, content form and use. It's vocabulary, it's grammar, it's syntax, it's articulation, it's pragmatics, but it's also just that that human need to be able to give and receive information. I was just talking with a patient yesterday, actually, and we were doing some random activity that was about organization and pattern recognition. And he's like, I thought you were speech. And I was like, well, let's talk about the language skills we're using here. And, you know, I explained how pattern recognition is when we put groceries away and how we know that we're not going to run over somebody when we're making a turn in a car. Right. Exactly. I think that you hit the nail on the head too, is that sometimes we think that what we do, even though it's so simplistic at the same time, sometimes people don't understand what we're doing or why we're doing what we're doing. And it's important to take steps back and explain that. And I tell all of the clinical fellows and therapists that I mentor that it doesn't matter what age or what cognitive ability of the person that you're working with, it's really important to talk to them about what you're doing and why you're doing it and talk to them about what their own personal goals are. And that's something too that, you know, when I do my presentation, 
I talk about how we are accountable to those goals and how my therapists and doctors had goals for me of what they needed to be accountable for. But I think it's really important to talk to your clients about what their goals are. And again, going back to what were you like before you got sick? And that's what helped me to recover as well. Um, my parents brought pictures of what I looked like prior to my illness so that the doctors and patients not only knew what I was like before I got sick, but they knew what I wanted to get back to. And that's super important because if you were to look at me while I was in that hospital bed, to a lot of people, I didn't look like much. And I think that's why people started to give up hope on me. And then that's when my parents bought the pictures and then everything. But throughout my recovery, and especially after I got out of the hospital, I started realizing that a lot of the skills that we have, I took for granted. Um, you know, six months after my diagnosis was the first time that I got on the floor, that all of a sudden my outpatient physical therapist said, hey, let's practice transitioning off the floor. And I was like, oh, I've never done that. And so just getting on the floor itself was a major feat because it's like just the, the action that you have to take and the, the feeling of where your body is in space was, you know, enough. But I was on the floor and I was lying on my stomach and I started crying and she goes, what's wrong? Are you in pain? And I said, no, I just realized that I have not been on the floor on my stomach. I haven't even been on my stomach for six months, you know? And then from that point on, I started thinking about as I was going through my daily routine, what am I, what am I limited by? And it was silly things like, um, I had spilled a, a jar of coconut oil on the floor and I, at that point had started, I was able to squat, but I couldn't sustain a squat. And you know how messy coconut oil is. You right. can't just squat down and pick it up. You had to be able to sustain a squat to clean that off the floor. And so I was like, you know what? I am going to want, I'm going to go to the gym and work on squats because I want to build that muscle back up to sustain that squat. Um, my, my peer mentor, Melissa had told me that you know, she felt like she's back to her normal self, but she still wasn't able to wear heels three years out. And I was like, I have a whole closet full of heels and I'm not giving mine away like she did. So I started going to the gym and working on my calf muscles to build strength for wearing heels. Um, the very last step to my independence was driving. My parents, I mentioned, they lived in Arizona with me for six months. I was in the hospital for four of those months, but they continued to live there another two months with me because I couldn't drive. So I couldn't get myself back to Barrow to get to therapy without someone driving me. I couldn't get my kids to school, to their, all their activities. So I still needed somebody. And so I started thinking about the last thing that really came back was movement in my feet and ankles. And so I started, I, even when I was lying in bed, I would move my feet in the motion of an accelerator. And I was like, I'm gonna drive again. And as soon as I was able to drive, I was like, time to go mom and dad you know I, appreciate you. I love you so much granted they were just as excited to probably get rid of me as I was of them but those were the things that I was striving for not just the goals they were writing for me in OT and PT but I ended up and that's part was part of my Facebook page too as I was documenting you know saying oh I have these goals what somebody said I'd be interested to see those goals and so I put it on Facebook and I was like here it is I'm accountable and so every time I would do something that was on my list, I would check it off and like, you know, make it publicly that I was accountable for this stuff. And I have, I've, I've taken, I've checked everything off that list 
with the exception of two things. I still would like to snow ski and I would still like to water ski. And the only reason why I haven't done either one is just because I haven't gotten to the snow or the water. <laughs> um, but when I'm going to do it, that's, I'm going to, even if it looks different and that's something that I talk to my other people that I mentor about. Um, one of the men that I've been mentoring recently, um, he is an avid water skier. Um, and I just, he was like, I don't know if I'll ever do it again. And I said, yes, you can. They, they have Dan the Lake um, through Barrow where they take people out and they do adaptive water activities. And so you are going to water ski. And again, even if it looks different than how you do it, you're going to do it again. So I guess that's something important too, is just helping your patients to come up with a list of their own personal goals. And even if it's something that's silly to you, then it, it, but it's something that makes them feel like they're back to their life, then that becomes a really important goal. You you had talked about it, and I was surfing through your Facebook or the Facebook group. I forget which one I saw it on. Uh-huh. And it made me smile more than it should have when you did the slow motion of the slow-mo video of cutting off the fall wristband. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. And- and I don't know if you meant it to be that way, but I have so many patients that get so angry when they say, I'm not a fall risk. I can walk. And then they stand up and then you're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. you're still a fall risk. And then to see them walk out that like at the end day and they, it's almost all of them just yank it, that fall risk off, take that thing off. No, throw it. it and, and I had gotten home and had forgotten that I had those bracelets on and I think it was my son that said, are you going to take those off? And I was like, absolutely. And so I don't know who documented it, but it was documented on Facebook. Um, but yeah, I, I was a fall risk. I used to joke because the first time I saw it, I was like flight risk. And I was like, oh, it says fall risk. I go, I, 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 if I were a flight risk, then that would be great. But that would mean that I was actually mobile and could get out of here. So, but I was, I was very happy when they finally took the alarm off my bed too. Because anytime they would sit on the bed, it would make like this horrible noise. So, yeah. Carly, I I do not put anything past you. And (laughs) I think that you will get back out the skiing. I've never skied, so I assume that it can't be that difficult, right? Well, well, and that that makes me laugh because I know that like last year on Dancing with the Stars, there was some girl that had been paralyzed by something. She was dancing again. And my friend contacted me right away. She's like, Carly, you have to see this. There's this girl and she was paralyzed and she's dancing. I think you should go on Dancing with the Stars. And I said, Beth, that would be a miracle because I couldn't dance before I got on the way. <laughs> We've talked a whole lot. Is there anything that I didn't know to ask that I you want so. people this to know said, about? I'm an open book. You can ask me anything in your audience. If they have any questions, they can always feel free to email me, call me, go to my Facebook page. Um, like I said, it's a passion of mine to, to talk about it, and it's very therapeutic for me. So I don't want people to feel like they're bothering me because they're not. It, it's, I, it's being me being selfish of let me tell you about my story. <laughs> and, and where can they find that? We'll put the links below, but any, any certain pages or anything that they should look for? Sure. On Facebook, it's called uh, GBS. So uh, George, Bob, Sam. So GBS, Carly recovering like a champ and looking good doing it. And I did not name it that. Someone else did, but a little embarrassing, but that's it. And then they can always contact me via email as well. Um, do you want me to give you my email address? If you feel comfortable doing that, we will put sure. that out there. Sure. It's A as in Alpha, R as in Ralph, T as in Tom, I India, 
Q Quebec, L-A-R-T-I-Q, L as in Larry, A, T as in Tom, E, and the number one at cox.net. So it's articulate, but it's spelled wrong. I was trying to figure out how that spelled and my phonetics went away right about the L-A and I was like, "Uh uh-oh, I don't know what's going on. No, it's articulate. So there you go. Well, Carly, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Welcome back to Speed Science. I'm Matt Hutt, joined as always by Michelle Wintering. Hi again, Matt. And Michael McLeod. What's up, buddy? Guys, our go-to feel-good article to end on, it is the Soapbox Derby, the Special Needs Division. Uh, This is out in Waynesboro. Uh, I don't know where Waynesboro is. Should have looked that up. But they have their own, like, part of the Soapbox Derby for kids with, with special needs or handicaps and stuff that they need. I love this kind of stuff. Have you ever done a have you ever done a soapbox derby, Matt? I have not. I have done go-kart racing and the Pinewood Derby, but never a soapbox derby. What's the difference? So Pinewood is Boy Scouts, right? Then what's the soapbox one? Yeah. The soapbox one is one where like dads and sons build like a go-kart without a motor and then all the soapbox cars get the drivers in them and they sit at the top of the hill and three two one they all roll down the hill and they steer and the winner is the fastest oh that's awesome that's isn't that the pinewood derby no the pinewood derby is where i build a little car out of wood and they race oh. Oh. these are yeah. ones that you actually okay, sit okay. in you actually sit in right yes correct okay. i see what you're saying now so sounds, it sounds dangerous uh, it is so dangerous that it is fun. <laughs> and then there is a Simpsons episode about the soapbox derby. But nope. So this is the second year uh, that they've done this. And we want to give out a huge shout out to the Blue Ridge Soapbox Derby in Waynesboro uh, for taking time to have a, uh, a special division for some of our students who may not be able to participate in something like this. That's, that's awesome. I'm looking at the pictures here and... I, I want to go ride in one. <laughs> um, it looks like Virginia, by the way, Waynesboro. Waynesboro, Virginia. That's awesome. I was trying to find that. Thank you. All right. So before we wrap it up and send it home, Michael McLeod, in 60 seconds or less, tell us what is something fun and or exciting happening to you next week. Uh, I think I'm going to one of the Phillies games with one of the schools I work at. So I'm looking Ooh. forward to that. That'd be nice. Uh, some parents and students are, should be going. So that'd be a good time. Uh, got a bunch of evals coming up, so that'll be that's always a always a pleasure. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to to the summertime. Things are starting to get warm. It's been a lot of rain, but I'm ready for some warm weather. That's awesome, Michelle. What's going on with you? Um, trying to keep up with our little guy who is quickly becoming a toddler. He's pulling himself up on things and thinks nope. he can be independent, and he really isn't yet. <laughs> um, and then I'm also headed to, as I told you. This coming weekend, I will be at the Hippotherapy Level 1 training in Nashville, which is hippo for horse in Greek. Yeah, hippopotamus training for therapy. There we go. We have have Fiona, the uh, NICU hippo. The preemie hippo. The preemie hippo. Yeah, and now she weighs like 2,000 pounds and still underweight or something. And it's crazy. famous. She is famous. For me... Uh, tomorrow, so this will drop tomorrow probably, but so today, I guess, whenever you listen to this, I'm going to a training for assessment in social skills uh, hosted by a uh, 
pretty big SLP, so I will say that name off air so I don't get in trouble. Um, other than that, uh, counting down the days until I am done with therapy. So, woo. You're getting there, Matt. You I'm getting there. Seven days. All right. Our intro music is Please Listen Carefully by Jazar. It's licensed under an attribution and share alike license. Our bump music was the County Fair Rock, copyright at John Deku. Uh, you can find him over at soundcloud.com slash dirtdogmusic. And our closing music playing right now, it's The Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution License. In the immortal words of Janice Wright, when life is difficult and throws you a curveball, make sure that you are a willow. The oak seems strong and mighty, but it will crack under pressure. The willow will bend and return to form. For Michelle Wintering and Michael McLeod, I'm Matt Hot. Until next week, so long, everybody. See you, Matt. Nice work. has been an exceptional podcast network production speech science is edited and produced by mwh production please follow speech science on twitter at speech science pc and like our page on facebook for more original podcasts please visit exceptionaled.com and rate and subscribe to our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts